Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhone. This is an app. It's amazing. It's a simple way to curate and share your favorite experiences, whether you're documenting a recent road trip with friends or you're keeping track of your favorite barbecue restaurants and bars, or you're sharing a list of your city's essential museums and monuments, Sweet Spot for iPhone is built for you. You can use the app to follow friends. You can follow family. You can follow your favorite actors, artists, chefs, whoever you want. And then, when building your own curations, you can pull in photos from Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you can pull in locations from Google Maps. And then, you use tags and text to tell a story. You can then share those curations on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, Google+, you name it. Sweet Spot, it's a little bit different from other apps in that it wants you to be really thoughtful. It wants you to connect places to places and moments to moments. Oh, and did I mention? It's free. You can download Sweet Spot for iPhone right now over at the App Store. Go do that. This thing is amazing. It's an app. You can download it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, folks, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a certain form of expression. This is almost like listening to a telephone call that has been wiretapped. How are you today? I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles. I'm not wiretapping anybody. I just recorded an interview. I just recorded an interview. It's hard to say that. Uh, I'm excited for today's program. My guest is Letitia Trent. Her debut novel is called Echo Lake. It's out there now from Dark House Press. And so uh, Letitia and I are going to be talking momentarily. We had a very interesting conversation. I enjoyed it greatly. Uh, today, the day of this uh, show's uh, airing, official release, is uh, Wednesday the 16th of July. I'm going to be attending the uh, ESPY Awards as a guest. My wife works on the show. I get to go. I've done this for the past few years. Always a good time. It's like the Oscars for sports, for those of you who do not know what the ESPYs are. I'm a sports fan. I like sports. I'll own that, even though it sort of uh, desecrates my literary brand. It's not cool to like sports, is it? If you're trying to be a book nerd, 
I like sports. I always have. I grew up. It's the language that allows me to communicate with my father effectively. We talk about sports. A lot of men know what I'm talking about. So I'm going to be uh, at the ESPYs. I have to wear a suit. You know, it's a thing. You go. And so I get to go. I get to kind of like walk around. I get this pass. It's one of those deals. And so I've been obsessing today um, and, you know, in the days leading up to the show, I've been obsessing about Jeff Bridges, who is going to be presenting on the show. I know he's going to be there. He's going to be in the house. I might see him. You know, and I never talk to celebrities ever unless they talk to me first. I can't do it. I mean, unless there's a really natural thing that happens, like you bump into them or something by accident. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I'm not the person who goes up and like asks for the uh, selfie or whatever with the celebrity. I don't talk to him. I don't bother him. I usually don't care. But Jeff Bridges uh, is the dude. I want to hang with him. I want to develop a secret handshake with him. I think a lot of people know this feeling. And so, you know, I was walking the dog. I think it was yesterday. I've done this more than once, (laughs) which is embarrassing to admit. But I've been thinking about, like, what if I run into him? Will I say something? I was imagining us, like, stepping up to the bar at the same time. Do you make a white Russian joke? Do you go there? Do you make it? You don't say anything about the dude. You can't do that. Just be embarrassing. He's got to be sick of that. <laughs> I, you know, you got to give him credit because he owns the dude and he embraces it warmly. And he, you know, whenever he does press and people ask him about the dude, he's never like bitching about it, which is always unseemly. Whenever celebrities complain, I, if I were a publicist or anybody involved in uh, public relations, the first thing you tell celebrities is just, you know, it's fine to complain. Just don't do it in the press. We know it's annoying. We know you have to deal with bullshit. But don't bitch about it in the press because it just looks bad to the average person who's thinking, oh, it must suck to be this rich, famous movie star who is the dude and who is beloved by millions and who is an icon. So kudos to him for being, uh, you know, such a good sport and for having a, you know, he's got, he's got a good brain. He knows what's up. And, uh, but it's got to get old everywhere he goes. <laughs> I would think maybe it doesn't, maybe it's awesome. Maybe he just revels in it. That's maybe that would be what I would want to ask him, but I can't do that. I won't have that much time. It's going to be a short exchange. So I was thinking because I interviewed on this program, Bernie Glassman, who co-authored with Jeff Bridges, uh, what is it called? The dude and the Zen master, the Zen master and the dude, that kind of Buddhism conversation book. I interviewed Bernie on this show. Maybe you guys listened to it. And I was thinking I could, you know, I could, uh, you know, use that as a kind of a point of entry. Hey, I interviewed your buddy, Bernie, but then, you know, you're at an award show. This is a brief uh, interaction. If it even happens at all, which it almost certainly won't. Are you going to really lead with Buddhism? Are you going to really get spiritual right away? You see my conundrum? You see my mental process? You see the movies I play in my mind? You see how I torture myself? My guest once again is Letitia Trent, her debut novel, Echo Lake is out there. I'm not going to see Jeff Bridges, by the way. <laughs> it's not going to happen. This is all imaginary. I'm just sharing with you my imaginary uh, interaction with Jeff Bridges. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest is Letitia Trent. Uh, her debut novel, Echo Lake, it's out there now from Dark House Press. It's very nice to have her here, and it's nice to be able to present our conversation unabridged for you. This is the director's cut right here. This is the uncut recording of my conversation with Letitia Trent, whose novel, once again, is called Echo Lake. I am in a suburb of Denver uh, in my TV room, um, which is very small and purple, purple walls everywhere. You have a small purple TV room? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the point? I mean, I guess like a darker color might be nice because it makes it more like if you, are you like an intense movie watcher or? You know, it makes it darker and it's my husband's room basically. So he wanted to have a bit of a cave. Oh. Um, so it's very dark and purple. Oh. More, no, sort of, yeah, purple. Yeah, sort of like Prince, like, 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 are we talking lavender or like dark, like manly purple? It's dark. Okay. It's dark. Yeah. 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 Not yeah. Do you call it, do you call it the man cave? I call it I call it Zach's room. It's my it's basically my husband's room. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So that's where does he play video games? He does. Yes. He's a he's a big gamer, <laughs> and he likes dark, dank spaces. Um, like he doesn't like windows that have light coming through them. So it's basically his. All right. His dark hole. How long have you been in Colorado for? I've only been in Colorado for two years. Um, I came up here for graduate school. Um. Yeah, up in Boulder. Oh, okay. So my alma mater. How how do you like it? Oh, really? Well, actually, I'm at Naropa, so I'm not sure. Is, oh, is that where you went? No, 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 no. I went to uh, CU, but Naropa, even better. Yeah. That's like super, like, <laughs> you're super hippied. I mean, that's like deep. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, uh, you know, there's a reason I don't live there anymore. <laughs> 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 well, you know, it's like I I went back. I go back every once in a while, and for anybody who's ne anybody who's never been to Boulder, like the quality of life in that town is is extremely high. Like from the nature, mm -hmm. it's so pretty. Yeah. Like it, it's the most serene place. But there's something. I go back there living in Los Angeles, which has its positives, but is also really dirty and scary, and there's crazy people mm -hmm. everywhere. Like I go back to Boulder, and I'm almost spooked by how perfect is it. You know, it is. It's like Narnia. Right. Yeah, no, it's a little bit like Narnia. Yeah. I mean, there's something to me about all the really rich hippies. Yeah. You know, the whole, the, the kind of Trustafarian thing that I find it very creepy. Right. I, yeah. And I have a little trouble with places that don't seem to have any sort of diversity except for 
I guess the kind of hippie diversity. Well, I was going to say, no, this, is like... my, this is my joke. It's my joke about Boulder is that it is diverse. It's got every kind of white person on the planet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of invisible, I mean, I come from a very poor family. So there's a lot of like invisible class stuff that right. people in Boulder don't really realize they're saying or doing or um, that, that I catch and I, I get, I got very disillusioned with Boulder very quickly. Yeah. So what kind of, like how, what kind of poor you said you were raised from a poor family? Like, are we talking like food stamps? Uh, yeah. I mean, we're talking, I, I didn't have running water or indoor plumbing when I was a kid until I was married. I didn't have those, those things. So yeah, pretty, Holy pretty shit. poor. Like what, 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 was yeah. the, what, where, where, where are you, where were you living? Um, I, I was born and grew up until I was about 12 in uh, Bennington, Vermont, which is not a terribly poor place that you wouldn't really, you don't really think of Vermont when you think no running water. But uh, yeah, I lived in Bennington um, in a little trailer way back in the woods. Uh, and that's where I lived until I was 12. And then we moved to Oklahoma where we lived in a trailer in the woods with no running water in Oklahoma. So, you so know. What are your parents like? Ba- are, are your parents like back to the earth hippies or? No, I mean, my, I, I think that if my mom was not, I, I mean, there's a little bit of mental illness in, in my family. And I think if my mom was a little more, could plan and think about things a little more clearly, she would be a back to the earth hippie. But I think that it's more like she just couldn't really keep her shit together enough to, to get things like running water and indoor plumbing going. Yeah. What was that? What was, so, what, yeah. what was plaguing her? I mean, is she like de- depressive or? Uh, she had uh, she had a lot of paranoia, a lot of like thinking that people are stealing her mail and her family's working against her and people are working against her. And that's a lot of the why we were isolated in the woods a lot. I was going to say, if you're paranoid, you're going into the woods. Exactly. Yeah, I was that kind of in the woods uh, situation. And I think she just didn't like dealing with people. And so she just wanted to be as far from that as possible. And when you set up a house, you have to deal with people. And so she just kind of did the basics of place to live She's, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sort of recognizing myself a little bit in this <laughs> I, I mean I have a little bit of it too <laughs> I think every every writer every writer let's just be honest every writer is like just a like one or two or three steps away from living in the woods you know away from yeah no seriously I live in a suburb right now and I keep thinking what are these fucking people they're all around me these people I don't want to have to deal with it no but you know you really wish I wouldn't have to see anybody you know but you know what you can do like honestly because uh I don't know. I, like I've lived in the middle of a crazy city for a long time, and there's a certain anonymity to that in a weird way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like when you're in a suburb or you're in a smaller town, you have less privacy or you're less anonymous yeah. because everybody sort of knows you. And you know, it's, it's sort of horrible to think of it that way because it's. I think that like as human beings, even if we say we don't want to be around people, even if we think we're uh, introverted and you know need our space or whatever, the truth is that we really need each other. Like whether we know it or not. Yeah. Right? I mean, we need people. Yeah, definitely. And that's, I think that's one of my big uh, struggles is that line between I need my privacy and I, I need other people. And that's always been tough for me. So what, what suburb are you in in Denver? I'm in, um, it's, I'm always embarrassed to say where I live. Why? <laughs> I live in Highland, I, I live in Highland Ranch, which is, which is uh, it's kind of not even a real suburb. It's just a huge collection of icky gated communities. Right. Um, yeah. I know it. Which I'm not used to living in in Fulbert. I'm not used to living in this way. So, I got we got this house for really cheap. My husband's a school teacher, and so there's this program for school teachers to get certain houses, and this was the one we got. Um, 
And so we kind of landed in a place that we didn't want to be. It's not that it's a horrible place. I don't want to be. You know, I have friends who live out there like off. It's off the 36, right? Or no? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so well, it's, a, it's a, a little bit off. Uh, yeah, twenty five, thirty six, four seventy. It's all kind of tangled right. up around here. Right. So is it like one of those? Because I have a friend who lives out there, and it's like this planned community that seems sort of like Mayberry, it's and it's like it's got everything. Yeah. There's like a little main street with restaurants, but it's like all built into the neighborhood. Right, right. And there's a lot of stuff like that around the, the Denver suburbs. There's quite a few little places that. Uh, they creep me out a little bit as well, it's, but it's just because I'm not used to it. I live in the woods. I, I'm not really used to living around people like this. And I li- and since I was a been adult, I mostly lived in sort of shitty apartments in cities. Well, I'm glad that so, we're, I'm uh, glad that we're doing this podcast over the phone so that you don't actually have to be in a room with me. I mean, I feel like this is better <laughs> for you. For you, I would love to be sitting with you, but I'm I'm glad that I'm giving you space. Is what I'm saying. No. <laughs> well, I can I can be in a room with people, you know. But <laughs> you can't. You sound you sound well adjusted. I mean, for I mean, for somebody who because and I'm going to go back to the woods because I think this is uh, unique and interesting. But uh, for somebody who grew up in the woods, you seem fairly well adjusted, at least at first blush. Like, do you feel like does the does the yeah. need to be alone or this the, the weirdness of the suburbs and maybe the uh, you know, any kind of overwhelming feelings that it might generate for you, you know, being around all these people after like a lifetime spent not being around people, does it ever get to the point where it manifests in an overt way or is it something that you're good at keeping internal? Well, I mean, it used to be a big problem, actually. I used to be very, I guess, social anxiety would be the, the diagnosis, you know. It used to be extremely hard for me. Physically, I would shake, I would have a I would uh, when I when I went to grad school the first time in Columbus, Ohio, when I was in my twenties, I it was very difficult to be in a classroom workshop. Um, I would I would blush, I would shake, I would feel like I was going to have a heart attack. I guess that's a panic attack, is what I was having. So yeah, like the, overtly, I would I would just have a lot of physical sensations around having to be in a room with with you know more than a couple people. But it got better as I got older. But it took a lot of a uh, therapy, I guess. I was going to say, you go, <laughs> you, go to, you go to a shrink and, and work it out? I did a little bit. You know, it was weird because when you grow up poor, you don't think of therapy as being an option for yourself. Like, that's a thing that rich people do. Like, it's in Woody Allen movies. It's not really <laughs> right. it's for not, me. It's not in the woods. There's not There's not a shrink in the woods? <laughs> no. No, there's not. You know, and and it's, a, it's never occurred to me until I thought, holy shit, I can't even function, so I better do something. And that, it got better after that. And I'm much older now, and I feel like I've figured out my line between how crazy I can allow myself to be before I can't function anymore, and then I, I go get a tune-up, as they say at the, the therapist. What do they do? They give because I, I always say that too. It's like, yeah, I should probably go to a shrink and like work out some stuff, but like, then it's like, oh, you know, God, that's expensive, you know. So it's like I'll work. Yeah. I'll work I don't mean to put off um, being the best person that I can be, but I mean, there is a financial component to it, you know? And it's like this big, it should be, I don't know that, that bums me out that it's only like available to those who are privileged. Right. It bothers me too. I'm actually, what I'm studying in Naropa is psychology, counseling psychology. So that's something I think about a lot, like access to the services and people like myself who are very isolated and poor. And how do you get, how do you treat people like that? How do you help them if they want the help? Yeah. Um, you're, so what, that, wait, that. so wait, you're going to be the shrink in the woods. Like you're going to do that. I, I might be. <laughs> hey, have you read, uh, I, have you read the, I just had Smith Henderson on the show. He comes to mind because his novel, Fourth of July Creek is about a social worker who's up in Montana working in the wilds, de- <laughs> dealing with people who are like living in isolation. Like you might, 
either you might want to read it and it'll be interesting and moving to you, or you might not want to read it because you've already lived it. I don't know. Like what the, no, that sounds great. Actually. I would love to read that. Yeah. So, um, okay. So take me through, like, did you go to school like a, like a normal child? Were you homeschooled? No, I wasn't homeschooled. Um, I went to school. Um, yeah, I just went to public schools in Bennington and, um, then I moved to Oklahoma and went to a really, I, I'm, when we were in Oklahoma, we were in such an isolated place that my school was tiny. We, the graduating class I was in had, I think, 17 people. Wow. Um, so that was my school when I was in high school. Um, so yeah, it was pretty, that, that part was pretty normal. Well, not really normal actually, but at least not homeschooled. So you're walking down like through the woods to get to school. How do you like? Do you have a car? Like what's what's happening? Like what? Give me. I don't understand. I didn't have a car. No, the, but like the mechanics <laughs> yeah. of your life. Like how does it work when you're living that far off the grid? I mean, honestly, I didn't go very. I, I was very isolated. Like when I was a kid, I was either the bus would get me and they'd take me home, and then I was home. Um, there wasn't much movement around. We had a car, um, but it didn't work very well. It was kind of chronically. Uh, in the shop. Well, it wasn't ever in the shop because we had money, so it was just wouldn't work for a while until we could do something about it. So it was just a lot of not going anywhere, just a lot of being home. Um, and Oklahoma in particular, that was a problem too, yeah. What, what's that? What was the problem? Just being home a lot? Just, yeah, just being home a lot and never really getting, because we lived in such, it was just so far away. You couldn't walk anywhere. You couldn't, you couldn't get anywhere unless you had a car, and I just didn't have access to that. So, yeah, very isolated. Was your dad around? Um, no, I don't know my dad. I never met him. Um, so he wasn't around. I have a stepfather who I acquired when I was, like, 10. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he uh, he was sort of on board with my mom's agenda, so there wasn't much. What, was he paranoid? I mean, he wasn't. He, he's a... Uh, not really so much, but just supportive of her paranoia. <laughs> like an enabler. Very supportive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a little bit of dependency there. So whatever she said was, was going to go. Yeah. Did you get along with him? Um, I mean, I he, he, he brought a lot of books into my life, which is something I really appreciated. He came uh, and just had boxes and boxes of books. And some of the first things I ever read that were adult books were his books. And uh, I really appreciated that. He was a reader. He was a guy who functioned really well before he met my mom, actually. Um, he had a job. He had a sort of regular life. And then he didn't anymore. But he, he did bring books to my life. And someone I could talk to about literature. And So wait, how did, they, how, did, how did they even meet? I'm, I'm picturing your mom not leaving the trailer very much or like leaving the woods. Like, how does she get he out? Didn't. How does she meet this guy? You know, I, she it's on Tinder? <laughs> it's on Tinder. This is like pre-Tinder. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine how that would that would work out. It would, that would, <laughs> oh God! Um, no, she's not on Tinder, and <laughs> and uh, so what happened was when we were living in Vermont, she got she just sort of got so stir crazy thinking about all the things her family could have been doing against her and people, and so she moved to Florida. We moved to Florida for like a year. I have an aunt down there, and we lived with her, and that's where she met my stepfather. Um, but she was so uncomfortable in Florida. And it was just not working out. And so they moved back together to Vermont where our trailer was still there. We just moved back into it. So, yeah, she met him in Florida. I don't know how. I think just some mutual friends um, of my aunt because my mom doesn't really have friends. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's kind of mysterious. I was young when they met, so. 
And is your mom, is, is your mother still with us? Like, is she still living in Oklahoma? Yeah, she lives in Oklahoma. She lives in Oklahoma. She lives in the woods, very far away from anything. She has like a hundred animals. It's, it's uh, pretty excessive. Does she trust the animals? Trust them? I mean, they are. She can keep them on chains and in pens and stuff. So she, so they are in, in her control completely. Right. <laughs> it's very good for her. Do you, I mean? Do you go? Do you go back? I mean, do you ever talk to her? Or like, I mean, you know, like. I, I to her it's hard to i'm um but yeah i try i try so okay so i mean and like it sounds like this uh you know the, the boxes of books that your stepfather brought into your life i mean for a kid who's living in isolation who's got a brain and uh mm-hmm. some self-awareness like that must have been like uh such a relief you know to be reading about other it books. was amazing so what books yeah well, I can remember some specific ones. He was a big sci-fi and fantasy reader, which I am not really, but among those books were some really good things. Like I remember this um, little paperback anthology. Oh, God, it must have been from the 50s or 60s called Timeless Stories for Today and Tomorrow, edited by Ray Bradbury. And I remember the specific stories that I read that I, I thought, oh, my God, these are, these are great. And it was Shirley Jackson's The Demon Lover. Um, John Cheever's The Enormous Radio. Uh, there was an E.B. White story I really loved. Uh, so, yeah, like some of those stories that are on the edge of genre and literary, that, that, that they're just really well-written, but also have genre tropes and, 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 and can be put in that category. Those are the things that I was attracted to of his books. Um, but I did read, like, all of his, kind of like I read the Dune books and, Lord of the Rings and all those sort of fantasy and sci-fi things too, just because they were there and I just would read everything he had. Okay. And so, and then were you thinking to yourself, I'm going to write books eventually, like at a young age or? I tried to write, but I was always, my mom was very paranoid about me writing. She would kind of come in and take what I was writing and look at it and make sure it wasn't about her. She had this real <laughs> fear that things I was doing were about her. Oh my God. And so I got, <laughs> so I didn't write until I was older and out of the house because I was kind of got this, this sort of fear around it that I couldn't really have any privacy in it. But I, I did want to write early on, but I was one of those things kind of like therapy where I thought it was for other people. Yeah. It took a long time to acknowledge that for me to feel comfortable to say, okay, maybe I can write. Well, and what about, I mean, what about grades, school? Like, were you doing well in school? I mean, you must have been doing well in school. Was that kind of a refuge for you, or were you not doing well? You know, school was, was tough. I, I liked I liked going away from home. That was pretty good. But I was so socially, I just didn't know how to be. I, I think literally I didn't see other kids until I was in school. Um, so it was kind of tough for me to adjust that. I didn't really have, I didn't really see my extended family very much, my my cousins. So I wasn't that great in school. I not socially. I didn't know what to do. But school, in terms of like English and reading, I was good. But everything else, I was terrible at. So I was like in gifted and talented programs because I tested well. But well, I we went, to, we went to a school with seventeen kids. So like, who was in gifted and talented? Like three of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that for for, uh, for Oklahoma, there was no gifted and talented. But before, okay. when I was in Vermont, there was right. a little bit more more resources for that stuff. Um, but yeah, but, but then I would do badly in school. I, I didn't really do that great in school. Not okay. even until high school, I said, yeah. All right. But so how do you, like, how did you even get here? Like, this is the, you seem like such a, uh, an unbelievable story to me because all the, all the, the, the deck was stacked against you and then some, 
you know, but to be on your second advanced degree and to be publishing books and living in like a, you know, prefab Denver suburb, you, you know what I'm saying? Like that's not, <laughs> I've made it. Yeah. You, I mean, honestly, like it's not a likely, it's not a likely story. Yeah. No, I know. I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess I just, I think I had this, this weird, I disassociated from my, from where I was a lot and thought, I'm not really here. It, the future is where I'm be, I'm going to like hang out. Like uh, when I'm an adult, things will be better. So I didn't ever really fully feel like, I don't know. It's a weird way. I, I don't know how to explain it, but I just didn't feel when I was living, you know, using an outhouse in Oklahoma instead of and having no indoor plumbing. I just didn't feel like that was where I really was. I was always looking forward to my adult life, which I knew was going to be better. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's strange. I just never felt like I was really of the places I was in. So I Wait, didn't was it, feel like I was, was it like down the, to them. Was the sci-fi reading helping you? Like you're thinking like I'm going to be in. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know. It's hard to explain. I don't really know. I mean, I also had a lot of help. I, my husband and I have been together since we were teenagers. And we both had very similar backgrounds. And we both kind of had goals and said, okay, we're going to go to school, we're going to, there's these things we want to do with our lives. And I think I had a lot of help with him my, in that partnership. Wait, so where did um, you, did you guys meet in Oklahoma in school? Yeah, we met when we were, I was 12 and he was 13. No um, way. Yeah, when I moved, yeah, the year I moved to Oklahoma, he was the only other person who read books in our class. So it was, we had a bonding <laughs> over that. That was it. It was your only option at that point, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, he was. <laughs> Uh, so, okay, that's that's interesting. You meet your husband at the age of 12, and you guys have been together ever since. I mean, we were friends in high school. Um, okay. But, yeah, yeah, we, we uh, got together shortly after that. And, and he lived in the woods, too? Yeah, well, he was he's an Oklahoma, Arkansas guy. He bounced around from different different very rural locations. His, his upbringing was different than mine, but also very difficult. Um uh, yeah, not so isolated. He had a huge, has a huge extended family, but lots of, uh, yeah, lots just, of disorder. Just lots of disorder. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's nice that you guys found each other. Like I was picturing you in school, like kind of like totally on your own, but at least you had a buddy. I mean, you had friends in high school. I did. I did. I had, my, yeah, I had him and, and a couple other people eventually. It so, was, it was hard though. Okay. So how do you get out? Like, what's the, like, you know, it's one thing to say I have goals and I'm going to go off to school, but it's another thing to actualize that coming from the situation that you were in. Right, right. Well, we both went to, um, we went to college together, which was helpful because we just didn't have money. Like, to some extent, it was just, we had to get out and we needed each other. And so we got married and we, we, uh. At what age? At what age? Um, 18. Wow. Okay. And you're still, yeah, you're yeah. still together. You're still together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of crazy. Wow. The, good... the older I got, the more I realized that was weird. But where we came from, that wasn't actually so strange. Um, what, so, yeah, pe pe people get that. People getting married and having kids when they're like 20? Yeah, I'm, well, younger than that. I mean, having kids first and then maybe getting married. Um, <laughs> right. <to> like many, <laughs> yeah, it's just a very rural, very, like, education isn't really emphasized and Having a kid is kind of a way to be an adult, I think, where we came from in Oklahoma. It's kind of your entrance into adulthood, and so doing that is not really not really considered an end to your life in the way it is in other, I guess, social, cultural settings. Right. It's like the beginning of your life. You're, you're an adult now. You have a kid. Okay, you're 17. You have a kid. You're on your way to your adult life. 
Okay, but you um, were, but you were, were you thinking I'm going to have kids, or were you thinking hell? No, 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 no. I'm going to go to school and I'm going to do that. Yeah, 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 definitely. So, yeah, so we went to Oklahoma Baptist University. We actually were Baptists back then. <laughs> like, funny to remember. Like, like you were actually, or you just did it to get to school? We we were, I was, but very briefly, I was a Southern Baptist. It's kind of weird to think about because I so quickly shed it once I got to college and started actually. I don't know. I went to a Baptist college, but somehow it still completely washed the religion off of me. <laughs> somehow <laughs> education just, it just kind of rolled away. And I was like, what, what was I thinking? It was like I was in some sort of daze. Well, what, was there, I, is, I, is I like a Baptist college, is there any of the trappings of like a typical university? Like are there parties and, or is it like no dancing? There, it is, you know, there's no dancing. Uh, there's rules, no dancing. Um, yeah, uh, so, but the, there is some of that because there's some of the more wild kids, mostly the theater majors. They uh, brought, they sometimes have parties. <laughs> and you, you weren't allowed to have alcohol on campus, for example. The dorms, if, if there was a boy in the girls' dorm, it was a big deal and a scandal. And so it was that kind of thing. I mean, we were married, so we didn't really have to deal with that stuff much. But Oh, yeah, you guys were yeah, married. So you guys lived in like what? You guys lived just in married co housing or whatever? We were in the married housing, which also had rules. I think there was rules about where you were allowed to have sex, even. Um, I didn't read those rules, but I think there were some, like, not in the kitchen, for example. I don't know. <laughs> not in the kitchen? Not where you break bread with, with Jesus? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, wait, is this one of those, like, Jerry Falwell universities or something like that? It's not that bad. It's, no. it's not. Oklahoma Baptist University is actually... It's actually, I had, I was an English major and a French minor, and I got, I feel like I got a really good education, because the English, the English professors were all pretty much like old Jesus hippies. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they were, they were pretty cool. They were cool. Um, there, but the rest of the school, like if you were a business person or in the theology or whatever departments, it was not the greatest place, but I feel like I got a really good education. I'm actually, I actually really love it, loved it. Wow. Aside from the Baptist part. Well, but, you know, you make a good point because, like, the Jesus hippie, like, there, there are different kinds of religious people, you know, like, in any, mm-hmm. in any religion, like, there's going to be good ones. But it's like, if you're actually, like, trying to emulate Jesus, you would sort of be a hippie, I think. Like, you know? Exactly. Yeah, and there was a lot of that in my department, um, not so much in others. I mean, we had to go to chapel, for example, and we'd have these horrible speakers come. Like, this guy once came and... He, he uh, basically preached about how he told this anecdote about how this woman was getting beaten by her husband. And the issue was really that she wasn't asking God for help with her marriage. That was what the message was, that you need to ask God for for help about how. But, but the anecdote he used to express it was about a woman being beaten. <laughs> for some reason, this wasn't a big deal to anybody, except for a couple of people who wrote in to complain to the paper that we had this guy basically apologizing for for abuse and uh the, the response by the president was basically that's not what, what he meant you guys are misinterpreting his intentions oh, man. so it was that kind of place sometimes yeah. yeah 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 um okay so but you got a good education yeah on i like were yeah. you on a scholarship or were you taking on loans i took out loans the first year and then because i did so badly at high school i just wasn't i didn't do very well but i did do i did well on standardized testing so that helped and the last two years, I had a full scholarship, so that was good. How did you get it? I just did really well. Oh, you did? Okay. And I did I, I did well in school, and I graduated with the honors in the arts and sciences department or something, but I really almost never spoke the entirety of my undergraduate 
four years because I was so terrified of people. <laughs> so I don't really know how I did well, but I apparently did well. Did you, I guess my essays were good enough. Did you avoid classes where there were there were like speeches and stuff like that? Did you read that? I did. I did. I mean, we had speech and debate uh, or a speech class that I was required to take, and that was my one B plus, which really always irked me. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise, it was straight A's. Yeah, I mean, I like school. School is fun. Yeah. And then what about, uh, and then you get out, you and your husband, and do you have a plan? Well, I, I had a, I started writing by then, and I was doing poetry. And I just applied to like 16 different graduate schools and, and MFA programs, and also master's programs uh, for literature, too. And I got into one, so we just went to, moved to Ohio after that. So I went to Ohio State. To, to get your MFA? Uh-huh. Yeah, I got my MFA there. So when you applied to get into the MFA programs, did you write like a personal essay saying like, this is where I'm from, like I'm from the, the woods of Oklahoma and Vermont, and I grew up in this really unconventional way? Um, yeah, just, I did. I'm, yeah. Okay, I'm just curious. I feel like that was kind of my money ticket. I, was I, gonna, I feel like that was kind of got, got me in, yeah. I was going to say, like, if I'm an MFA uh, admissions person and I'm reading that, I'm like, we are bringing this girl in here. Like, that's such a unique <laughs> um, background. And I feel like... Uh, I don't know. It's like sort of heroic that you got to that point. I don't even know how. I don't. I don't know how many people would have done as much with as little. You know. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just feel people say that, and I appreciate it. I just don't really know how it happened. Right. So it's hard to <laughs> hard to comment on it much more than. Do you have any? Do you have any siblings? I do. I have a sister, um, a little sister, and uh, a really uh, much older brother who I don't really know very well. Um, yeah. Okay, did you did they get out? Yeah, I mean, well, my brother has some rocky rocky moments in his life, but they did get out. They don't live in the woods in a trailer anymore. I, well, actually my brother lives with my mom, so he does. <laughs> he did get out for a while. He lives in he lives in her basement. <laughs> he was, uh, there's not much of a basement in a trailer. He lives in a room. <laughs> I, I kid, I kid. I kid. <laughs> but um my sister did. Yeah, she does real well. She uh yeah, she lives in Arkansas and Fayetteville, which is a cool little town. Okay, so this is the thing, though, is that, like, I wonder about how people, because, like, certain people are presented with circumstances, and the context could be anything. Like, you could have some hippie kid in Boulder, and, uh, like, I could be speaking about myself, like, with uh, m- many more advantages, you know, mm-hmm. uh, who, when confronted with challenges in life, like, just crumbles. And then you could have somebody coming from, like, your situation uh, and you somehow managed to kind of like, uh, you know, overcome it or transcend it. Do you think that like, it's, a, mm. I mean, it, it would seem like, uh, is it fate? Is it genetics? Like, do you know what I'm, I'm driving at? Like, are you just wired to, to, um, survive and are other people just wired to like fold or is it some, I'm curious about this, you know, how this works yeah. in life, why certain people, um, overcome obstacles and why others are felled by them? Like, what's the difference? I think about that, too. I don't know. I feel like there's something about being bound to the kind of cultural norms of a place that might keep you from... I think about Oklahoma when I think about that question a lot and the really rural place we lived. And just I think the expectations were so low for kids there, especially poor kids, that it was very hard to conceptualize yourself as going anywhere or doing anything besides what everyone else did, unless you were really exceptional and someone pointed out you're really smart or you're really beautiful or you're really good at sports. Um, but I, I never felt like I was of any of the places I lived. I didn't ever feel like 
I needed to go by the cultural norms. I never felt like I had to do what people recommended I do. So it, it never really, that part never affected me. I think that's, to me, that, that mattered. Um, like the, the thing about having kids young, you know, people, as soon as we got married, people were expecting we were going to have kids and I just never occurred to me to go along with that suggestion. Do you have um, any now? I do. I have a, I have a two month old now. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. The boy or girl. Thank you. <laughs> a boy. A little boy. That's, that's fun. So you're not, yeah. you're not sleeping much right now. No, no, not really. Not doing much of anything except for rocking and bouncing and <laughs> Yeah, I know that I remember those days. That's like uh it's like I feel like the first five months are just like a blur. It's like you're just in the weeds and then eventually you emerge from right. It's good to be talking to you as you're in this deep fog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's it was weird to have an adult conversation. Well right that's now. that's the thing <laughs> though. It's actually kinda nice when you're in that mode to actually have an adult conversation because you spend It so is. Yeah. You know, your kid your kid's not saying much. No, just a lot of weird gurgles. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, so you go to Ohio State. You're are you are you starting to come out of your shell a little bit? Or are you still pretty uh, closed off when it comes to the class? You, I think you mentioned you're still pretty quiet in the classroom. Yeah, I it took me I think until my last year, and I really that's something I really regret. Like I wish I'd gotten my shit together earlier, because I had so many there were so many cool people that I was in school with. And I mean, I did get to know some of them. Like I think you've had, you've interviewed some of the people. I, like Kyle Miner, he was in my class. Okay, yeah. Um, John Pollock was in my class. He wrote uh, Knock and Stiff, and he's done pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, they they were great. And I, I, Kyle was a good friend of mine. And But I just was really, it was really tough for me until, until the last year to really figure out. Because I just had this. I think one thing I did get from growing up was the sense that no one really wants me here, which was my mom's kind of paranoia. Like people are out to get you. People don't like you. Um, and I knew logically that wasn't true, but that's a hard thing when that's all you know for a very long time to to get out of your head. Like, so when you, when I want to say something in class, I just, I think the thought or the, the physical feeling of like, Oh, don't talk because no one wants to hear you was very tough for me to shake. Well, that's what she would say? Like she like she had a thing where she thought everyone, I mean, I guess everyone's going through your mail, everyone's out to get you, but would she tell you? Like, yeah. Like no one wants you here? Like stuff like that? Or no one wants you? Well, it was more like, it was more like, you know, don't talk. It, it, there was a, that, that was the underlying message. Like we're not wanted. We are, we are people who, people are out to get us. And, but, the, but like literally we, she would not let us sort of talk in public or, it was very much about how we appeared and she didn't want to make any sort of waves. Like she had a weird thing about cars too. Like she didn't ever want us to lift our hands in the car because it would look like we were waving to people and people might not like that. It's, this is very strange. Like it's very strange stuff. And I knew at the time it was illogical and it didn't make sense. But I think, I think it just was such the environment that I was in that I had a hard time. What, what is, could she be medicated or is there any medical treatment for this? Like, I mean, you know, I'm, uh, I think, I mean, I, I study psychology, but she's my mom, so it's hard to... Right. You can't really... <laughs> but I think she has some sort of personality disorder. And I, I think that she... Because her... She doesn't really realize she's suffering. Whereas when you have, like... When you're anxious or depressed, you kind of realize, wow, something's wrong. I should get help. Um, but I think that for her, that never crosses her mind because she truly believes that the world is, is the problem. Yeah. So she would never, ever go to a anyone not that she could afford it but yeah so it's tough it's one of those things you can't really can't really do much about it right good god okay so 
Um, you get at, I mean, in, when you were at Ohio State, like another thing that you mentioned like w- way earlier in the conversation that I want to talk about is, um, you know, uh, coming to, to grips with or being confronted with class distinction because you, mm-hmm. mu- you must have felt that as you got out of the woods and went out into the world, uh, you know, and I'm assuming like at Oklahoma Baptist it was there, but not maybe as, as in, in such a pronounced way. Then you go to Ohio State, mm-hmm. probably a little stronger. Then you go to Boulder. And it's like slapping you in the face, <laughs> you know, like, like right, where yeah. it's like, that's like a really, I mean, I, I spent eight years there, so I get it. You know, um, how do you, how do you process that? Because, you know, I find this fascinating. I think it's something that people don't talk about much. Uh, I think that there's a weird thing happening because everybody wants to do well. I think, I mean, to at least, mm-hmm. to at least a degree, like everybody wants to be wealthy. It would be nice, wouldn't it? You know, to not have to, yeah. Uh, to be uh, financially independent. And yet I, I, I can find myself and I come from a, like a, a relative background of privilege, uh, privilege, like uh, especially comparatively speaking, like I had a much easier road um, and I can still find myself bristling in Los Angeles and being uh, made anxious or like experiencing feelings of inferiority or just like, uh, I just can't deal with these people who have these incredibly privileged lives um, and yet, at the same time, I wish I had what they have, <laughs> uh, if, if, I'm be, if I'm being honest. So like, it becomes this complicated loop because let's say things change for you and like your book takes off or you become the next J.K. Rowling and suddenly you're like, you know, sitting on all this, like, then you become them. Do you know what I'm saying? And it's like, yeah. and then yeah, it's like, yeah. uh, you used to be pissed off at them just for having that. It's like, how do you work through that emotional knot? Yeah, that's a great question. I've done something I think about a lot now that I'm middle class, kind of, you know, it's, it's, that's so much more than what I had. I make more money than my mother does in a year than my mom and my stepfather have in many, many years. It just, it's, uh, it's already a problem for me. And I don't know, as soon as I got running water, I started to feel that way. Like, oh. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> I've, become... such, I've got, I've got indoor plumbing. I'm a horrible person. <laughs> Yeah, um, that is tough for me. And I, I, I also feel, though, that uh, there's something about education that had already alienated me from from my background to some extent. I think even not having money but being but having a higher education um, than, than my mom or, <laughs> excuse me, other people that we grew up with, um, that felt funny. I started to feel like uh, I started to feel like I had even less. I even less to relate to because I just didn't have the same kind of lifestyle anymore. And that, that's something that's tough for me. Okay. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's fascinating because, you know, you think about I, it's, I've often read and heard, you know, that like money is a great divider and it makes people, lo- <laughs> it make, makes people lonesome and cut off from one another. And it works on both mm. sides. It works. It works both ways. It, it cuts both ways. Like, you know, you can be the poor person who can't access like Richville because all, you know, the rich people around you are like going and doing things that you can't afford to do or you're not, mm-hmm. you're, you're not invited because you're poor or whatever the case. Um, but then if you're like the rich person, you know, you can't trust people because you think they want your money. You don't know why people are being friends with you. Um, it can be isolating and weird in its own right. Um, but right. I, yeah. and I get that, but what you just, uh, spoke to with regard to education is maybe even more depressing, <laughs> uh, because, <laughs> you know, like, it's like, you know, you, you go and you get an education and you acquire knowledge, which seems like, um, uh, inarguably a good thing, but yet it can divide you 
from people you care about or make them uh, yeah. do, do you know what I'm saying like even education has yeah. like a, even education has a downside <laughs> it absolutely does I mean it really does like the things I want to talk about with my mom I can't talk about she doesn't she went she dropped out of school at 10th grade and um I like I can't really relate to her on any level I, I mean on some levels I can but it's just really hard um and it's been like that since college but I mean it's been like that forever because she has other issues but that kind of thing happens a lot. Um, and you feel, it feels, you feel like an asshole for not being able to not feeling like you can be yourself or not knowing how to talk. And that's something I have trouble with too. Like not knowing how to talk to in-laws or not all of my in-laws are great, but like just sometimes there's a few family members that it's tough to engage with because I don't really know what to say because the things I'm, I'm consumed with in my life are just so foreign to them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think I mean I think there's some of that in everybody's lives. I mean, just the, the, as mm -hmm. a, as a way of trying to make you feel better, you know. I think communication in families or communication mm -hmm. co communication across cultural or socioeconomic or educational divides, like it's always like a little bit tricky. And you know, that's true. Interper yeah. Interpersonal communication, period, um, with anybody w with whom you're intimate, you know, and and intimate can mean a lot of different things. It can mean like day to day intimacy, or it can mean like you know, you're intimately bound by way of family or genetics or something, um, or, you know, in-laws, et cetera. Uh, you know, even mm -hmm. there, even there, it's like, you know, how do we speak? How do we, um, how do we, how do we maintain the bond? How do I make sure I'm not offending people? Like I, I, right. I, I talk about this on the show a lot and I'm just in, and, and I think about it a lot in my own life, but I, I can't help but get over the power of language and how, um, how much vigilance you need to have in terms of how you communicate, like in speech and writing and how like one false move, you know, especially if it's like dramatically false, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. can, can blow up a relationship, can damage it beyond repair or damage it for a long time. And, um, you know, I think about that as a parent, like what do I say to my daughter, like, Holy God, like I've got to get my act together and make sure that I'm like aware of what I'm thinking and saying when I'm talking to her. Right. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not to that worry yet, but that now makes me worry. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I could add that to your growing list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I will think about being a writer too is a big, that, that's a big thing. Like, what am I going to, I mean, my book is about Oklahoma. What have I said that will offend people? I know there's tons in my book that would offend people. What do I imply about the place that will piss people off? Is there any character people are going to think is based on them? You know, that kind of thing goes through my head a lot. Is your mom going to read it, you think? I mean, I'll send it to her. She uh, she probably will read it. I don't know. I don't know. I feel awkward with her reading things. She's never really read much that I've written because she's not, like, online on the Internet, and she's not in getting literary magazines. So, um, she'll, she'll she read it. Really I bet she'll read it. What mom, like, <laughs> yeah. like even, a, even a mom who's, like, got a difficult emotional situation, like, if, the, if your kid writes a book, you're going to read the book, I would think. Yeah, yeah, she she probably will. Yeah, if I send it to her, she'll read it. I don't think she's going to be able to buy it. But if I send it to her, she'll read it. I was going to say I can't wait to read her Amazon review. It's going to be awesome. You know? <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay. So, um, but the, you know, then you get to Boulder. Why did you go to Naropa? You got another degree? No, oh, this is the counseling degree. Uh, yeah, the counseling degree at Naropa. I, that's, we took a couple. I few years off between my MFA and this, uh, this counseling degree. Um, it was, the question was, why did I go to Naropa? Yeah. Are you a Buddhist? Um, you know, I, I meditate and Buddhism interests me. I don't know if I feel confident saying I'm a Buddhist, but 
I think philosophically that's the most, that's the closest what I, yeah, that's, I believe, that's, I guess. That's where I am. And I, like, I, I guess that's part of a larger question that I wanted to get to with you, having gone through all that you've gone through and overcome all that you've overcome. Is that like, you know, do you have, uh, like, I mean, it sounds like you have some sort of like spiritual thing that you do because it would seem like, like if anyone would need one, it would be somebody who's, uh, had as many challenges as you've had. Um, mm. and I don't mean that. And I mean, yeah. I, I just, I guess I hope that doesn't sound negative. I just mean like, I'm a ma- I'm projecting myself. Like I, I I need it, and I've had it comparatively easy. So like, like, how are you managing all this without something? You know? Yeah. Well, I think yeah. I mean, back when I was a Southern Baptist, I think that was some part of the reason. Like it was a, it was a mechanism by which things could make sense, and I could, I could sort of put myself in some larger context and feel like I had some purpose. And when that kind of fell away, it was okay because I, I guess I guess think writing had become my my religion at that point. But I think the Buddhism and then particularly meditation, that's why I came to Naropa because the, the psychology program is kind of focused on meditation as part of her treatment. So how did you get into and meditation? Me, how did you get into that? I think a therapist, a therapist and when I lived in Vermont briefly as an adult, she introduced that to me for anxiety, um, which is something I always had to deal with. So, and that really helped. I mean, at first it made it much worse. Um, Right. Because I was just you, really anxious, but. Well, no, but like, then you, like when, when you sit down, you sit down and then you watch your head go crazy. Like that's like a little bit mm-hmm. uns- unsettling. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. And then I realized, well, that's kind of the point. You can see it happening and realize, oh, that's just what it does. It's not a big deal. I don't have to make it stop. I don't have to listen to every single thing that goes through my head. I can, And that was the big, for me, the big key, like. It, my head still goes crazy, but I don't have to listen to it. Right. Uh-huh. Well, and it's also like, I think it's really useful when it comes to like writing or any project that requires yeah. cre- creativity and concentration, because, you know, sitting in the chair, everyone talks about it in, um, you know, in a writerly way is that's the big challenge, like keeping still, um, you know, resisting the temptation to go and like reorganize your refrigerator or whatever, instead of actually doing the work and, you know, all you're, all you're doing really is like, you know, getting sucked in by your mind when that happens. So I feel like meditation and like sitting through uh, the process of writing a long book are not too dissimilar. No, exactly. I mean, yeah, you're choosing where you put your attention, really you're being intentional and, and yeah, you're realizing that your mind's doing these things and you're kind of diverting it, you know, back to what you, yeah, yeah. So yeah, definitely it's helpful. And I found it so useful that I decided I wanted to, to to help other people, I guess, in a more direct way than writing does. So that's why I decided to get the psych degree in Europa. That's cool. I think that's a it's a noble impulse. And so um, were you reading like prior to Naropa? Like I know that the shrink tipped you off on meditation, but did you have books that you were reading by certain um, like meditation teachers or spiritual people that you found helpful or? You know, I read a lot before I went to Naropa, and part of the reason why I chose Naropa was the uh, Shogim Trumpa Rinpoche, the guy yeah. who, who uh, founded Naropa. I really like him because he's very direct and very funny and a flawed guy. Not I was, was going to say, he, was like, he drank himself to death also, which is not normal for a Buddhist master. <laughs> no, I mean, it's not. Um, but he's, and, and it's one, I kind of like him because he shows that you don't have to be perfect. Um to have some sort of wisdom, but I mean, his books are great. Um, I can't think of the specific names of anything because I haven't read a book or thought use my brain in this way in about two months, but he has a lot of good books um, that people can look up <laughs> and people like Pima Chodron and 
I like, uh, yeah, uh, uh, the Suzuki Roshi, those kind of stuff. I like all those, all those you, guys. You ever, you ever uh, get into Thich Nhat Hanh? I like Thich Nhat Hanh a lot, yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I, I love listening to him talk. He just talks in this, like, constant whisper. Like, that really, yeah. I, find yeah. it, I find it very calming. <laughs> yeah, no, he's great, yeah. yeah. I need that in my life. I need someone to just calmly whisper to me, like, constantly, with, like, a slight, <laughs> with, like, a slight Vietnamese accent. Um, well, that's cool. So then you, you start to read these people. They're influencing your thought and, like, your approach to life and then also, like, your uh, your volition, like, what you want to do with your life in addition to writing. Mm-hmm. And so – and you know, I have this thought a lot too. So I kind of admire you because you're out uh, doing something about it. Whereas I'm sort of like pondering or whatever, but uh, you know, the, the idea that you're going to go and actually work in service to other people uh, is something that uh, seems very good. And I wish more people did. I wish I did more of. So um, when you go to Naropa and you start to study um, counseling, psychology, etc. Um, and you and you try to integrate a meditation practice into that. Like, do you have to get super uh, intensive about the, your discipline with it? Like, do they require that of you? They require meditation. I I'm trying to think back. Um, we have meditation courses that we're required to take that have a specific. There's actually some, there's a couple of programs in psychology, and uh, the one I'm in is a little less intense. There's the contemplative program in psychology that requires these three week intensive uh meditation retreats every few months and that is intense and i kind of wish i'd done that but it didn't seem possible See, i want i want to like i'm a twice a day meditator when i'm you know most of the time sometimes i miss like a, mm-hmm. ses- a session because like uh you know my daughter needs something or you know i've got like mm-hmm. life conspires so i try my best but uh i i've always wanted to go on one of these retreats but like here's the thing yeah. this is where we're getting into my own social anxiety I'm terrified of the people that will be there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause I feel like, I I mean, I know that there will probably be some cool people, but it's like, even when you go to a yoga class, like there's all these people who who like hold eye contact for an uncomfortable length of time and seem like like really like aggressively nice. And like, there's all this pain, like, like that I can sense below the surface. And it's like, I just don't know if I can bunk up, bunk up in one of these like ashrams for like a long weekend without losing my mind. Right. Like, do you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. I mean, my husband and I used to do a lot of stuff with nonviolent communication, which is this, used to do these workshops and the kind of people that would go to those workshops make me think of that. Like we were all uh, in one of these workshops, we were talking about why we wanted to learn this type of communication. And I just remember this one guy with a long ponytail and he was wearing one of those sort of flowing tunics like a cult leader would wear. Oh, God. And, was, it, uh, was it a great, was, and, it, was it, I'm picturing a gray ponytail. There's something about a gray ponytail. It was always dangerous, <laughs> always a danger sign. Run from the long gray ponytail. <laughs> and he was like, you know, I want to learn nonviolent communication just because I feel like I, I just go too deep with people too fast and I want to be able to get back to their level. And it's that kind of thing that bugs me in, in these sort of like, whenever you are doing some kind of what's considered self-improvement type thing, like meditation or whatever. I want to have a private, I I want a private retreat where it's like all the monks and just me. Is that possible? Can we arrange that? (laughs) That would be awesome. It's it's like, but you know, the other thing that freaks me out is that I read about these things. This is something like I've like circled for, for years, but it's like, the thing that stops me is that you have to do meditative eating where you're like, you have to eat in silence, mm-hmm. you have to eat in silence with the group. 
And like, I don't even eat with my, I don't even eat with my own family. Like the sounds of mastication (laughs) disgust me. I don't want to be in like some meditation hall, like eating quinoa, like silently listening to people chew. Like how do people do that? That's gross. See, that can be your meditation. That can be your meditation on the feelings that arise when you're disgusted (laughs) by the quinoa chewing. Uh, It's it's too much. I can't can't cope. I can't. And I feel like, am I So this is what they would, this is what the Buddha would tell me. He'd be like, dude, you just, this is your meditation. Like you need to get over this. Mm-hmm. But I, there's a part of me that's like, no, I'm, I am justified. This is disgusting. Like we can, <laughs> let me go. I'll go eat by the tree. I'll go sit by myself and have my quiet lunch, but I'm not going to sit in this weird situation across from people. Cause that's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing like all these people at like a table and no one can talk and everyone's eating. It's yeah. Just, I think that's exactly how it is. Yeah. So you're right. (laughs) Have you done it? Have you done it? I have not done one of those um, long silent ones. I've done some weekend things, but I work online too. So I can't ever be away from the internet long enough to do any of these, any of these long retreats. I kind of wish I could. What are you doing online? I uh, teach a couple of classes just to get some money coming in. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, Well, that's interesting. And, and did you like Naropa? Like were some of the, um, was some of the class stuff that you, uh, you know, that got your hackles up, was that within the context of Naropa or was that just like walking around the Pearl Street Mall? Well, you know, I mean, Naropa itself is a very privileged place. Like, I mean, there's something about the, yeah, it's a very privileged place full of a lot of people who clearly kind of have never had a job really and their parents pay for their everything. And that's not, that's not an insult. That's, that's the way it is. And that's great. Like if I could have had that, that would have been kick ass. Like I'm not, I don't really judge that as bad, but it's just, it's very, people will be like, Oh God, I feel like I really need to do some self care right now. So I'm just going to like take, <laughs> take this week off and go to Hawaii or something, you know, because I just really need that for myself. Oh, God. And I just think, Holy shit. Like that really, that's an option in your life. Yeah. That's an option that you have. And I, I think people don't often realize that that's not an option for a lot of people, especially if you're in Naropa, where a lot of the people around you have a, the same. They're like, yeah, totally. I need some self-care. Aloha. Like, take me with you. <laughs> let's, go care, let's, go care, let's, let's go care for ourselves. What do you say? <laughs> yeah, so but, okay. that, that kind of. Yeah. But that's interesting because like, and this is another component, you know, clearly I need to write about this, but like when it comes to the money thing, like I have this theory that money, unless you're extremely vigilant and maybe you could tie this into like mindfulness and meditation, but unless you're really conscious of, um, it and how you feel about it and how you think about it and how it affects your behavior, I have this theory that it, that it causes amnesia in people because Mm. you can see people, excuse me. You can see people, examples of people who come from very little, uh, you know, very little at all, who then go on to, to have money, and they can easily fall prey to exactly the type of scenario that you just described, where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, man, I've just been studying so hard. I need to go to Maui for a week to recharge while, like, everyone else is, like, barely paying their electric bill. And, you right. know, I, I know how to parse that, but it's just, it amazes me how quickly and how, like, um, totally people can sort of forget, you know, and mm-hmm. I guess that begs the question, like, what's the, what's the right way to be? What's the right behavior? You know, is it like, give your money away? Is it don't go to Hawaii? Is it just go to Hawaii, but don't fucking tell me about it. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, is it bad? It's not bad to want to go to Hawaii. If you can go to Hawaii, then 
<laughs> why the hell not? I don't, but yeah, that's tough. I don't know. I mean, I think about that with myself too. I don't exactly like have money now, but I can go to a movie. I can buy a magazine. I can do things I used to not be able to do. And I, it is, I do forget how it was. I forget how it was when, when I was a kid and how I was when I was in my twenties and could hardly, could hardly afford food. And I used to be on food stamps. I completely have forgotten how that felt or what that was like. So, yeah. So um, it's all relative. And so, um, I don't know, you know, I, that's a, I think it's a big issue. I have the, I, I think that like, I, th- I think that people need to give like the only way the world's probably going to like really reach its full potential. Like human beings are actually going to like thrive and like coexist peacefully and not be as completely fucked up as we seem to be would be if people like got like really like a lot more generous with one another. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that'll, yeah. ever, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but like, it's like, like beyond the, beyond the bounds of what is like considered like generous in like current social conditions, like people with right. have to just literally be like, okay, I, I have a lot. People are starving all over the world. Just like here, like just indiscriminately, just like give it away. <laughs> I, I think that's almost harder if you, if you started poor though, to do that, I think there's such a psychological thing with money. Like if, if you start poor and you have a lot of money, it's very, very hard. I think, at least in my experience to give up a lot of it because it's security. You're like, Oh, holy shit. Now I'm, now I can rest. Yeah. I've got enough. Right. I, I, and I need to like keep my refrigerator always stocked. And I need my cupboard. Like I think people who just grow up rich don't have these worries. They don't need big fucking cars to show that they're rich. They don't need like a lot of food in the refrigerator. They they just there's this sort of sense that the world will support you. Well, my grand started out with nothing. Yeah. Yeah. No, my grandfather was like raised in during the depression and came from nothing. Was a first generation American. Uh, this is on my dad's side, and like I remember, like you know, he as my grandfather, uh, he never uh, gave anything away. Like when I was a kid, he still mm-hmm. he, he like his garage was packed to the ceiling. With like everything he'd ever owned. My dad's like bike from when he was five years old was in there. And like, it was just like, it was almost like crazy, you know, like how much he saved. I think that was part of the psychology. Like uh, we got stuff, (laughs) we got some shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We got to keep it. And then I like two generations removed, like grew up very comfortable, two parents, um, like just like apple pie, you know, like very, Mm -hmm. I I feel, I feel terrible about it. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, that's I know. great. I know, but it's like, I, I feel, I think I'm softer because of it. I think, you know, mm-hmm. there's like, you know, I, I know that like all things being equal, you would have rather had uh, different circumstances possibly, you know, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. hindsight's twenty twenty. but I think somebody like you, if there's a way to spin this um, in a more optimistic direction or whatever, you know, somebody like you, you must have a lot of confidence in a certain way because you're like, you overcame all this shit. Whereas like, Somebody like me who hasn't had to overcome nearly as much, um, like I feel like the expectation for me to be uh, good and to do well is like, well, of course you should. Look at look at how lucky you are. Mm-hmm. And so when I when mm-hmm. I fuck up or I don't do as well, it's like crushing, and I feel like such a you know I feel horrible. It's like oh my god, you know, with all these advantages. Yeah. And whereas you you're mm-hmm. like, you're like hey you know like bring it on I can do this like look at where I came from and look where I am. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's that's true. And my husband and I think a lot about our son and how different his circumstances will be than ours. And we just think, wow, like, how are we going to make him interesting? Is he going to have enough trauma? Right. Just, just, gonna... just send, him, send him to grandma's house for the summer. He'll be fine. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I don't think he'd come back. 
<laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I mean, you know, but that's, the, I mean, that's the generational progression. And I mean, it's the way I guess theoretically mm-hmm. it's supposed to work is that your kids are supposed to, mm-hmm. you know, we, we want our kids to have better lives than we did. I mean, that's a natural impulse. Right. And, uh, we and ha- I, just, I feel like middle-class people and the, the wealthy people I've known, actually they're awesome and they seem way less fucked up than me. Like I feel like they can talk to people. They didn't have to go so many years to learn how to be in a room with people. Like, I just feel like and I love it. I love, I love people who are well-adjusted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I feel like it's all relative though. I mean, some people really are, I guess, <laughs> like super well-adjusted, but you know, as you get older and you, everyone starts to face like face down mortality and like mm-hmm. you have kids and like, I mean, life gets everybody. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, That's true. absolutely. Like maybe like, I think there are maybe certain, like, uh, certain things about growing up well off or, um, you know, coming from a place of privilege or like having like a privileged educational background that make you present well. But I, like my feeling is that like the yeah. more the more people I get to know, like everyone's everyone's fighting a hard battle. Everyone, like you this know. is true. You know, yeah. I, I had a friend who was talking. She, she was very wealthy, and about all the pressure her family put on her to to have a, a a career of some sort, and how she felt all this pressure. And I thought I've never had to feel that pressure. See, like, no one's ever pressured me to do anything. No, my my dad uh, was the first in his family to go to college, and like he did really well, and so. Uh, I look at like the distance he traveled and there's like absolutely no way I can match it. And then there's also, Mm. there's also this thing where it's like, now that I'm a father, it's like, if I don't give my daughter at like a more than what I had and I had basically everything you could want, um, Mm. then I'm not a good dude. And it's like, it's a, Mm. it's a really intense pressure that I would not have if I had been raised in the woods. So I envy you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really? Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. Life is complicated, is it not? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but it's been really fun talking with you, and I congratulate you. You know, on the book, I think what you're doing, um, you know, with this counseling degree uh, is really cool. And uh, I hope, I hope yeah. you, I hope, like, you know, selfishly maybe, I hope you write a memoir. Do you think you're going to? You know, I keep trying. It's hard to know how to do it. Yeah. I feel like more people have to die before I feel comfortable. <laughs> that sounds awful. That no, sounded bad. I get but it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get it. <laughs> but I mean, it, it seems like if ever there was a life uh, and an early child, you know, an early life in particular that called for a memoir, it would be somebody like you who, who had such an unconventional um, existence and came out of it, you know, uh, and into the place where you are now. Yeah, well, thanks. Maybe I will. Okay. Well, great talking with you. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much. Okay, guys, there you go. That's Letitia Trent. Go get her novel. It's called Echo Lake. It's her debut, available now from Dark House Press. You can find her online at Twitter. Her handle over there is at L.E. Trent, and she's also on the Facebook. Uh, thank you, as always, to Kill Rockstars. How's that for a weird segue? Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Appreciate that, Kill Rockstars. Everybody should go to killrockstars.com and check out what they got going on. Uh, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now wherever apps are available. You get that app, you download it, it's free, and then you can stream every single episode. You sign up for premium right there within the app. It's like, uh, a, you know, it's very cheap. It's a pittance. And then you can hear my conversations with authors like George Saunders, uh, Edwidge Dantica, Jonathan Lethem, Tom Parada, David Shields. There's a whole slew. Go listen to the whole slew. And uh, I just want to reiterate that I'm not going to have an interaction with Jeff Bridges. I'm really not. I might see him. I'm not going to say anything. Maybe a thumbs up. 
Maybe a... No, I'm not going to give a thumbs up. <laughs> a peace sign. It won't happen. I'll see him on stage, and that'll be that. As it should be. But I got to say, I mean, I'm really like... I'm deep into my uh, dude love. I'm one of those people who gets really deep into the Big Lebowski in a real way. I've gotten so deep into my dude love that I've actually been on eBay... I actually hunted down the dude's sweater, the sweater that he wears, that weird cardigan. Almost bought one for like $300, just so I could wear it around the house. (laughs) Because I I really do want to be like that guy. Not that I want to smoke weed constantly or like wear jelly shoes, but just that I want to be attitudinally. Is that a word? I want to have that kind of attitude. I want to be that laid back. I want to accept my life. That's the thing about the dude. He accepts his life. He's not trying to become anything. Trying to have a good time. He's trying to go bowling. He's not trying to achieve. He's got, he's got his shit figured out. Please remember that Sarah Orne Jewett died of a cerebral hemorrhage and that Montaigne frequently quoted Plutarch in his work uh, but never acknowledged him. That's all for now. Thanks to Letitia Trent. And by that I mean Montaigne didn't like, uh, you know, it was like appropriation without representation or whatever. He quoted him but then didn't uh, let anybody know that he was quoting Plutarch. Have I over-explained that? Thanks again to Letitia Trent. Go get her book. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate that. I'll be back soon with another episode of this program. Uh, I'm going to go figure out what I'm going to wear to this award show. I only have one suit, and guess what? It hasn't been dry cleaned since the last time I wore it, and I'm going to wear it anyway. So look for me on the red carpet in a wrinkled black suit. Look for me in the audience. I'll be there with a strange expression on my face. I'll be thinking about uh, my missed opportunity to have a very awkward exchange with Jeff Bridges. White Russian? <laughs> hey, dude. You like Buddhism? I'm a huge fan, Jeff. Can I have a selfie with you, Jeff? Would you develop a secret handshake with me, Mr. Bridges? Maybe I should just apologize to him before I say anything. <laughs> just walk up to him and be like, I'm just, I'm so sorry. And then just walk away. That's the answer right there. I'm sorry, Jeff. I'm sorry, dude. All right. I'll let you know how it goes. If it goes, maybe I won't. I don't know. I'll talk to you later. <laughs>